following is my podcast with Cyberfan. Cyberfan is a technologist. He's a programmer. He's a developer. He's a consultant for a software firm. Importantly, this podcast really gave me a good insight into the conversations between Palantir and this potential firm that's looking to adopt Foundry. This is one of my favorite podcasts because Cyberfan gives a really intelligent and technical insight into the bull case of Palantir, yet whilst keeping it all realistic, rounded. A very interesting conversation. I think there's so much value in it. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy. Yes. Right. Hello, everyone. I'm joined here with an amazing guest, Cyberfam, as I'm sure you all know him by. Um, I'm Christian, the founder of Dantons, a media company that's focused on innovation within markets. And I'm really excited to talk about Palantir um, and go deep into the company because I think it's exceptionally interesting. And especially some guests I've had on recently um, really helped me understand and I hope help help everyone understand the technical side of Palantir in more detail. There's so much I would like to speak about. So, so please do give yourself an introduction. It's great to speak to you and finally connect with you on Zoom. Yeah, yeah, you too. You too, Christian. I think... Um... Do we call you Chris or Christian, man? First of all, call me, that out of the way. call me Christian. Yeah, it's fine. Okay. Okay. Cool. Cool. So, so yeah, um, Christian, appreciate it. I think uh, I caught onto your channel. Uh, Chris, Chris sent me your stuff over, and I was like, wow, this guy's like, you know, he's got some pretty cool stuff. So, really glad to jump on, jump on this with you, and uh, sort of like hash out this Palantir stuff with you. But just an introduction for me, really. Um, so, uh, my official day job title is uh, SRE and DevOps engineer. So this, it's kind of like a weirdly muddled role, but. Long wind of it is that uh, I help teams sort of uh, set up their IT infrastructure, uh, things like servers and networking and, and a little bit of security here and there. But realistically, I'm a consultant, so I, I you know, you often wear multiple hats. And um, I, I'm not really a data person, so I haven't really delved too much in the data thing. But my data experience does come in through, uh, so I, before this, I had basically two failed startups. So you can say that I'm like a serial failed entrepreneur. <laughs> but anyway, so those ones were involving uh, some AI work and some machine learning work. And, and you know, by doing that, like 90% of the time you fail because you don't have the right products for the mm. most part, right? Like you, you want to start off with something and it works in your computer and you just want to leverage as much as you can so you can scale. And, and sometimes in my case, at least that was a problem. So um, I know that we were doing a lot of like my team and I were doing a lot of ML work. We, we tried Google, we tried, um, you know, Amazon, things like that. So we, we heard of Palantir at that time, but, um, but my day job is that more or less. So uh, transition from a developer. So I used to write a lot of code, you know, build uh, some social media stuff and a whole bunch of other things like that over to the operation side of things where I'm handling more. So I guess the, the boring stuff, I'm the bad guy at companies, put it that way. Yeah, sure. I think, um, I, I try to, to code and develop too. I mean, I'm, I'm yeah. not very good at all in comparison to the grand scheme of things. But it's it's interesting just how I think that knowledge so far has like helped me understand equities and spe especially complex companies like Palantir. And I know it's just speaking yeah. to CodeStrap the other day. Um, yeah. His business background and what he does as a day job obviously helps him. So I guess it's the same for you, the fact that you've started a few startups and, and just have that experience within kind of the data scene to some extent. Um, yeah, Codestrap, uh, sorry to cut you off. Codestrap is definitely like he's he's super technical. He's into that. There's a lot of people in this community there that are you know they have like a it's, it's kind of like a motley crew of people with different experiences. <laughs> if I, anything, but I, uh, I, I think the Palantir community is kind of developed in something awesome. Um, you have so many different just yeah. backgrounds and experiences that come in. 
and it just gives you all these different insights. You have the technical side, but then you also have the, the, the fundamental and financial side and all of these ideas yeah, have yeah. kind of meshed together. And I, th <laughs> I think now the community is actually really good, kind of on par with, with Tesla-esque, which is obviously an exceptional Ooh, community. On par. That's awesome. Yeah, um, that'd be awesome. <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of a controversial statement, I know, but it, it's great to see how everyone's developed. And I, I guess it all started with, um, with Jackson. All credit yeah, to him. Yeah. I, I remember watching him, you know, a, few, a year ago or so now, and he was pushing out content back in the day on Palantir. And it stemmed from, awesome, it stemmed yeah, from he's, that. He's pretty much the OG. Yeah. Yeah. So it's great. So tell me, the first question I had, I was theorizing over today. Um, I mean, Wall Street is against Palantir. Kathy Wood is against Palantir. <laughs> George Soros is against Palantir. He sold out from all of his funds. Tell me more. Tell me more, Christian. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's, it seems like, I mean, these people are obviously very clever, right? It seems like Kathy Wood, George Soros, the whole of Wall Street, every, every report I read, apart from a yeah. few, seems to be very pessimistic against Palantir. Can you just tell me about um, your view in terms of Wall Street's short-sighted vision? Do you have any reasoning as to why you think Wall Street is short-sighted? Are they short-sighted? And, and do you think that's yeah. the correct approach to coming um, and evaluating a company like Palantir? Yeah, I think so. I, um, they're definitely short-sighted, but I'm not, I'm trying to see whenever I do anything investment-based, um, I always try to base it on somewhat, you know, as, as, as logically as possible, right? Mm. Because we can't get, we can't get too emotional about it just because, you know, it is a company. It's not like, you know, we, we, it's not specifically our baby. So we have to be very stoic and we have to be, we have to understand certain things before we invest in this. Um, so I think that being said, I know Kathy was like a huge bull coming into this from actually what, a few months after the DPO is when she really bought in. In the beginning, she took a small position and started adding up and took really large positions in the mid-teens and, and closer to the early 20s, I think it was. So, and a lot of us, right? A lot of us mm -hmm. YouTubers covered it and all this stuff. And she was sort of like the, the flag bearer for some of our retail investors as she has been for Tesla. Um, so that being said, there I think the street is definitely, they're missing something for Palantir. And, and I, I think it's kind of like a dichotomy where there's one side of it where they're looking at the fundamentals. And, and honestly, this happens a lot. Like if you go into the history of some of these sort of obscure companies and Palantir is probably one of the more obscure, more like, you know, yeah. it's a deep tech company, right? So it's very hard to understand typically. Um, and, and that's almost by design a little bit. That's, I think, one of the reasons why they might have DPO'd as well. It, it was just a little bit, uh, if they IPO'd, they might have dropped further right after. But to get to the point there, I do think that the fundamentals don't specifically speak to something like a lot of people compare it to in the beginning, everyone is comparing it to a consulting company, right? <laughs> and then later on, it ended up being compared to like a regular SaaS company. All these different, like all these different comparisons came about. And we do that like as humans and, and as a lot of the, um, you know, investors in the, in the, in the professional community do that a lot because they want to, they want like a good, they want to look at Palantir and look in the mirror and say, okay, what exactly is this thing? Right. And, and it's human nature. We want a, a sort of con a concise way of understanding something like, especially a company. So, just off of that, people are generally, you know, not having a good idea what Palantir is. And on top of that, if you take a traditional approach to understanding something like Palantir, you won't be able to do that, right? Even something like Google, which is actually a fairly simple model to understand, people had trouble with in the beginning. Like, oh, this is a search engine company. You know, it's, it's it, you're taking it at face value, but Google actually is a very easy company to understand from it's it's from before. I mean, now you know there are a whole bunch of other stuff, but from before it was very easy. You could very easily say, okay, they're, they're doing everything for free. This is a 100%, like, you know, you are the product type of company, right? Um, or an ads company for the most part. So even for something like that, it's easy to understand. So Palantir definitely will be harder. And I think the reason why is because when you start looking and peeling the layers of Palantir, right? It's almost like a, like a bloody onion, right? Like <laughs> the, more, uh, the more layers you peel, the more layers you see. But again, I think this is by design. Like people have to understand that 
like how I would say people should look at it is look from the tech up. And people say they do that, but it's not actually that common that people do that. People compare the fundamentals and like, you know, the profitability and stock-based compensation. And that's fine. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. But that you're looking at it from a traditional metric. And that applies to a lot of other companies. But how you can differentiate between like a normal company and something like Palantir is one, look at the founders, right? I don't think, I really don't think the street's looking at that. There's not as much, I mean, with Tesla, you brought up Tesla, so I'll bring this up, right? With Tesla, it was easy because Elon is Elon. He does what he does and, and he's very you know, he grabs a lot of attention, right? So it's easy for them to look at the founder and, and it was like almost like the exact opposite, right? For them, it's like, you're a car company, but Elon is saying all this other stuff doesn't make sense. Whereas Alex Karp is saying all of the things that, you know, people want to hear in the tech community, but, you know, people don't see the product. It's almost like a little bit of a black box, right? And they, to be honest, until this year, didn't really do a good job of really releasing too much content out there. Now they have a YouTube channel, all that, and that's great, but they really did not. Like you would have to be somebody like Kathy Wood, um, or dare I say somebody like Ross Gerber, probably not, but <laughs> someone like that to actually be able to get into like behind the doors and actually know it. Right. So, um, that, that's why I think like a lot of wall street is missing it. The problem with wall street, and, and this is just my take on, I'm not, I'm not a professional, right. But the problem with wall street, I think is it's a little bit backwards looking like they yeah. jump on a lot after a mm -hmm. big fish jumps on yeah. or something. So once, uh, and George Soros, by the way, I already brought that up, but he was like, I think he had the same reasoning as some of the same reasonings as Ross Gerber. So I, I can't really agree too much about that, but uh, this, this whole politics situation, I think it's stupid. Like, you know, Palantir is, I mean, for those of you guys who don't know, like, you know, Peter Thiel is like pretty conservative and, and Alex Karp is literally the exact opposite of that. So it, the company itself is being run by two people that are complete opposite on the political spectrum and it's still running. So like, I, I don't know why people take such a political stance over this stuff. It's a business. They're, they're out to do a job. Now, the one thing I think um, Soros did mention was the whole, what was it the, um, the you know, basically they, they're trying to just bolster the West or whatever, right? The Western democracy and all this other stuff. Parts of it, I'm, I'm sure, like everyone can be on, depending on where you live. I'm sure, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> but I think this, all of this, clouds the sort of view from even a traditional view. So if you look at it from a traditional glass, all of this extra noise within the actual company and the stuff that's coming out, plus the fact that they're only now releasing stuff, plus the fact that um, you know Alex Carp has been more vocal about certain things rather than the business, right? He, he talks big. He's, he's a big talker, right? Some people want to see like, you know, uh, they want to break down more or less. So I think all of that combines to a, okay, we believe in this company, but let's see what's going to happen in the next few years. And then all of a sudden it's like, you know what? No, I don't think so. It's very easy to just dismiss it. Uh, there's so much I want to speak about there that I just wrote down. Yeah. Wall Street, firstly, um, from speaking to some guys on, on the street and, and, I know a few guys that are in investment banks, etc. I, I, I think it's fair to say that for the most part, they're, they're measured by short-term targets. And you have to be, that's part of the industry. There's not many of them that, that are measured over yeah. um, two, three years. Kathy Wood is kind of the exception to, to the list when it comes to the street and the, the long-term vision in which she suggests that she has um, and that we can see she has. I think importantly also on the topic of short-term Wall Street visions. There's also an importance on, on, on concentration versus diversification. I can't see via, via, via reading many of Wall Street's um, reports, those from Jeffries, those from Morgan Stanley, etc. Right. I struggle to see how uh, they can understand Palantir in such an informative way if they are um, invested in hundreds of companies in which these hedge funds and, and big big organizations are. They, they don't have the ability, and this is where I really think that, that the, um, the retail investors have an advantage, 
right. through having the ability to kind of narrow down on like five stocks maximum. At least that, that's the perspective for me. And I think, yes, it's risky. I'm, I'm more than willing to take the risk. But I really do believe that, especially in the context of Palantir, it took me, I think, four months as a minimum to actually understand what does the company do Absolutely. and why are they doing it. And, and even two years on, I'm kind of learning still daily yeah. about the company. Um, I think importantly also, you mentioned there Palantir's PR. I mean, when I first started investing, which was fairly recent, recently after DPO, the PR was terrible. They had no, yeah. they had demo days, which were solely focused for um, organizations that they had no real team focused Palantir's on. Palantir's PR was Jackson. Yeah. <laughs> it's... Jackson and, and after a while, Tom Nash. So. Seriously, it was. And I think those were kind of the sources I went to and I was obviously I was reading the S1 but even reading that S1 recently I actually forgot to mention this um, in a video but I thought that S1 I mean was was very poor really explaining what Palantir does and that's the S1 yeah. filing I mean if you look at the the PR back in the day it definitely was was confusing and this is kind of where the narrative came by Jim Cramer and being a black box he reinforced <laughs> this narrative and therefore people just kind of grabbed onto it because at the time it made sense I mean, yeah. I think it's kind of a reinforcing prophecy. The more Jim Crane was saying that, the more people believed that it was a black box, um, which was very unfortunate. But my my main points just from what you said is, number one, the fact that the Wall Street is so short-sighted and they are measured on short-term targets. They have, right. to, they have to, to achieve, you know, a few quarters targets. Otherwise they're at risk of leaving their job. And, and obviously, if you're, if you're going to go long in a company like Palantir, ideally, you want to be in the company for like at least five years or so um, to yeah, ensure yeah. that they can really accelerate past that S-curve. Importantly, also... They're, they're going to come to a point, Christian, where yeah. you might be able to do that short term. Like maybe in, I don't know, maybe in a decade of some sort, you could probably jump in and you can actually measure it short term and you can go at it that way, right? I mean, it, largely, even, for example, something with Tesla, in, in 10 years, 15 years from now, they're going to, go to that cyclical side and you're going to be able to track that stuff, right? Because they're going to be past that, you know, super hyper growth. I mean, unless you're building the whole autonomy stuff, but you will see, right? Like the, the not autonomy, um, the Tesla, Tesla bot. But anyway, yeah, I think just to, just to, before we get off topic, I want to touch on the Cathy Wood part. Like mm -hmm. I made at least, like at least six or seven videos on this. I, I actually think the reasoning they gave, I think it was Brett Winton that, that gave that reason as to why they left. I, I think it's total BS, man. To so be honest I. with you, I, I'm just, I'm just going to call it out. Um, I mean, I'm still holding ARK, so I have ARK-K, um, so I'm like, you know, averaging down there, but it's a very small position. But at the same time, you know, those guys, like you're saying, are the one people that you expected to have that long-term, at least five-year time horizon is what they themselves have sort of like said, right? So they started piling in, I think it was 20, 2020, uh, December, I think it was, and it's not even been two years, right? So in a way, it kind of raises your eyebrows a little bit. And the reasoning they gave was even dumber because for something like Palantir, <laughs> They're literally trying to get out of the business that Ark was complaining about. So in a way, it's like, you know, you, you can't, <laughs> I actually think the reason they got out and, and they mostly bought Roku, right? To be honest, I think the reason they got out was because, um, and, and I spoke to Chris kind of briefly about this, but uh, it was basically mainly because the fundamentals right now for Roku are a little bit stronger. So it's almost like you're stopping the bleeding rather than, um, you know, like if Pantheon is going to go down and, and there's a lot of retail in this stock, right? So they're like, okay, let me get into something like Roku where the fundamentals are actually a little bit stronger. So it helps that baseline for them. So they don't, you know, bleed out on the street, really. So I think that's, that's the re I, in my opinion, that's the reason why they did it. I, I agree completely. And I, I originally kind of, I was speaking to Sachin on Twitter about this. And I originally thought, you know, Sachin was, was stating that, that um, it was to do more with, with the outflows and, and Kathy Wood mm -hmm. coming under pressure. And I was like, I don't think I agree with this. 
because yeah. I don't I don't want to kind of speculate upon reasons as to why she sold. I want to focus on the company. That was my thesis. I yeah, want to yeah. focus on have I missed something within the company? And it, <laughs> long story short, I, I can, I've turned around and recognised that that view on Kathy selling um, because she doesn't like the business. Or I think that's actually flawed, and I agree with you. Yeah. And, and Sachin now, in terms of number one, I think Kathy is coming under pressure. Um, number two. Perhaps it's some tax harvestation reasons. I don't know. I don't want to speculate upon that. Um, I don't yeah, know yeah, the ins and outs of, of an ETF. But I just think it's strange. Um, and listening back to her comments recently, she speaks about Palantir Edge AI specifically being at least five years ahead of, of others. Yeah. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm just cautious on her, on her five-year vision perhaps being a marketing trick with something I've also speculated over. But also, I think on the, on the topic of Brett's comments, and they were very interesting too, he spoke about a private company that was competing against Palantir. Um, you, you've yeah. made a video on this that, I, that I've watched. I actually came across this company. Um, it must have been over a year ago now. I think you've made a video on it, or at least you've spoken about this in a podcast or something. Um, but it's really interesting. And I, and I came across this a, a long time ago, and I thought, this is just absurd. I've never heard of a company that's marketing themselves. Are you talking about DataWalk? Yes. So Chris made a video on DataWalk. It was, it was Chris. I, I, okay. Yeah, so I did the one on uh, the internal government project, which is like Project Raven or something. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Palantir themselves... Sorry, Chris, were, were you finished? I'll, I'll... Yeah, no, I was just going to ask you about, <laughs> about this private company. Do, what what yeah. do you think of the private company that is so-called competing against Palantir? Because from my, from my research, it seems like a total fallacy, to be honest. Yeah, it's it, it doesn't... I, don't, I, I mean, they've been around. It's not like they're new or anything. They've been around for a while. The, the, to be honest, like when I first started the channel, someone brought this up to me. I looked into it and... <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll see if I can find the comment, but it was funny because when I first, if you look at their site, I'm not sure if they changed it. A lot of it is actually focused on like trying to compete with Palantir. It's actually kind of weird. Like the, their verbiage is, is very, very much like, oh, here's our competitors. We offer this much and Palantir does this. And it's like, and there, <laughs> there's even a, a, they definitely might've changed it, especially now. I don't know. I have to check again, but there was one little clip. I think I screenshotted it, but they, they were saying that, uh, Oh, Palantir might be cheaper and they might offer more things, but we do this one thing. And it's like, <laughs> oh my God. I, so for me, it's, it is, it, I agree with you. It's definitely a fallacy. See, there's actually a dime a dozen data companies like Datawalk. It's not very different. The, the thing that they offer that might be different, each company that offers that might be different is the actual um, sort of like the augmented, augmented suite on top of the data stuff already. It's not very difficult to build a data lake. Like Chris, honestly, Christian, like me and you, literally could spend like two months learning data work and we could build a data lake. It's not different. <laughs> the, the difference is what the value of that data lake is, what other stuff are you providing for, you know, for people who are actually in this platform to use and that kind of stuff. That's actually the same thing with Palantir as well. But the difference is, yeah, I, I don't think these guys, to, to stay on the topic here, I don't think these guys are, um, there's no way, there's no way it's this company that they're talking about. If it is, if it is that one, I really doubt it. Um, so Alex Karp themselves have mentioned that their real, real competitors are, uh, you know, within organizations like uh, in like homegrown, you know, homebrewed um, DIY sort of projects within. And that's something that I actually have done. Like I've, I've literally um, been on teams that have competed with, uh, you know, um, Salesforce products and all these other things. Right. So I can tell you that this is a, usually a very strong initiative within any sort of like uh, enterprise org, mainly because you, you pay a large sum for, for uh, something like, like Palantir is actually kind of like a bigger product, but you pay a large sum for uh, enterprise SaaS, right? To come in. So there'll be, there's always two schools of thought. One side is like, yeah, you know what guys, we're lazy. We just need the result. So let's just bring in these guys. We'll cough up the money. We'll figure out the money somewhere else and let's just use it. 
And then there's a second school of thought. Usually it's the two directors or VPs that argue with each other, which is, look, we can hire good developers to actually build the real functionality that we need. We don't need all of the stuff they provide. I think we should do that. So sometimes there comes a time when you have that moment within a company. Many times, actually, it's after the, the software has been onboarded. So it's after the, the SaaS company has been onboarded, for example, or it's right in the middle of that process where the company will say, hmm, you know, uh, I don't, maybe we don't need to pay because a lot of the business model is all tiered, right? It's all a tiered approach. You can't sometimes, like I think Snowflake is different in this case where you can buy like one or two different things, whatever. But in a lot of cases, things like Salesforce, when you buy something, you have to pay for a certain other things that come with that, that suite. Um, so then some parts of the business will scratch their heads and say, okay, uh, you know, director or VPB, why don't you put together sort of like a skeleton team and see how you can compete against this? So I'm pretty sure in the government, this happens as well. I actually have worked in one project that's, that was government-based and it was exactly this. We were trying to augment something from Azure or something it was. And um, Ascarp himself said it, right? That's our pretty much number one competition for the most part, because they know what they want and they're like, we'll just hire some developers and build it. So when it comes to a data box situation, absolutely, I think it's total hogwash, to be honest. I agree. I, I completely agree with what you're saying there. Um, and I think you also, at least the kind of idea that I got from that was an inflection point that I don't think has occurred yet in which yeah. organizations, I don't think are prepared to, yeah. to really adopt an invasive holistic solution when it comes to software, because I think number one, Palantir, and this is a disadvantage again, they're very invasive in what they do. It's an expensive product. Um, and often organizations are very concerned when it comes to adopting this product um, because of obvious reasons. It's very invasive, very, very holistic, and they feel like perhaps they're locked into the platform. Do you think, right. and I saw someone mention this on Twitter earlier in terms of an inflection point, do you think a, an inflection point is going to occur? And when do you think it's going to occur in which organizations realize we need a, a, an invasive or a holistic solution such as Palantir in comparison to just using individualistic tools? Do you think that will occur? And, and when do you think that will occur? Oh, it's 100% going to occur. Uh, before we move on to the flexible point, I want to touch on one thing that you mentioned, which was the fact that Palantir is expensive. To be honest with you, right? So so the guys who are watching, let, let's, let's be clear on something. The sticker price is not the end price of any kind of software when it comes into your company. I'm telling you guys straight up, it is not the, you actually, most of the time, within a year, pay about 40, 50% more than the sticker price and it's an ongoing thing. So there's professional services. There's like, you know, some extra white labeling. There's so many different things. And I'm, I'm only talking about the low-hanging fruit. There's different things that, like, for example, there's retargeting from the companies. The companies come back. They'll say, oh, you know, come, we'll, we'll buy you lunch. And here's another, um, you know, suite of software that you can uh, you can load, which, is, which has like one little gimmicky feature or whatever. It's actually quite a, it's, it's just as invasive as Palantir. Let's put it that way. So in my opinion, I think Palantir, in my opinion, is actually cheap. Because what you're getting is you're getting an entire platform. You're, you're, it's like somebody saying, okay, you know what? Your, your computer is running uh, whatever Windows and you know we don't think that's good, but why don't you try Linux or why don't you try this complete operating system? Yes, you're paying for the whole thing right now, but the thing works right out of the box. You're not worried about integrations. You're not worried about hiring external consultants to you know put things together or whatever the case is, right? Um, so I actually think it's pretty cheap. The overall value that you get from something like Palantir is very cheap. That's one of the big reasons I'm into the stock. And that's, I think the first video I made was like, these guys are too cheap. I should pay, charge more or whatever, right? Um, so, so yeah, so to get to that. And the second thing is the inflection point that you were mentioning, Christian. Yeah, it's definitely going to happen. I'll be very honest with you. I think like me and you kind of gelled on this on one of your videos. I, I remember that you mentioned something like this too. There's very few of us in the community that are a little bit realistic about this, right? Just frankly speaking. But mainly the fact is 
the inflection point will come. It's 100% going to come. But I don't think it's going to happen in the next like six months, seven. You know, it's not going to happen in the next year, mainly because Palantir, like you mentioned yourself, it's a very holistic, thick product. And the industry, a lot of the VPs and the people that make the decisions here, they're not used to buying that. Right. So you might have somebody like Airbus who are not by any means technology people, or you might have somebody like, uh, uh, you know, like Merck who are at the mercy of technology. They're not, they're not like tech, you know, leading companies or things like that. Right. Those guys will make big waves for sure. They're actually building complete ecosystems there. It's a big deal. Sure. But for them, it's not a big deal as much for something like Palantir, in my opinion. I think where they're going to make a mark is when they have like a really big company. Um, like a Fidelity or, 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 or a big bank or something like that. Because uh, those markets are a little bit, they're, they're almost like margin markets, right? So something like Fidelity, if, if, they, if they buy something, you know, if they onboard a Palantir into the data suite, the other companies or, or forget Fidelity, like think about banks. Banks are super competitive. So I can't say who, but like I know, okay. So for example, some projects I've worked with, a company, uh, say, for example, a Canadian Imperial Bank of Commerce, they onboard XYZ software. I know for a fact that there's like the other bank will literally just talk to the same guys and try to bargain them down for a different deal just because their, comp their competitor got it. Forget the fact that it might even be useful. I worked for a company that we knew deep down, we knew that these guys are not going to use our product for Jack, but they, they sold it to them anyway, just because their competitor was using it. So when, when they get into a market like that, when Palantir, say, for example, gets into, I don't know, like PNC Bank or something like a big bank or something, right? Then you're going to get that dom the first domino that falls, and then it's going to start, you know, compounding from there. I think the first domino has already fallen. It's just it's fallen in, like, areas that are a little more niche, a little more specific. Uh, once you get to the broader space, I think it's the inflection point is going to be, it's going to come really quick, really, really quick. Um, and mainly because we don't know much about the companies, the deep tech, but yeah, it'll come. I think... Um... I, I agree completely with that, and that's definitely what we jawed upon. I think also Pandir have recognized that this idea of the inflection point, and now you're seeing the emphasis on becoming more modular and ensuring yeah. that, that they can offer a sister a system towards set industries, towards set companies, perhaps on a more modular um, and less invasive scale. And I, I was reading a report, this was over a year ago now, um, by yeah. Jeffries, and they mentioned how... Um, one of the main criticisms for using Palantir was the fact that it was overkill for the use case. And it's kind of really interesting in my mind just to, to make the connection, the fact that now Palantir are, are really emphasizing the importance of becoming more specialized perhaps towards a set a set um, industry. So so first I'd like to hear um, perhaps your, your, your comments on that, but importantly, the changing cost structure you mentioned, and you stated that Palantir in your view was cheap. Palantir are moving towards a changing cost structure in which, in the words of Sankar, um, is a no-commit structure. So you don't have to have the whole pie at once. You can kind of, in a more modular manner, take parts of the pie, and therefore, um, when you need more, you can add to it. Yeah. This has to have importance in terms of commercial adoption. And we haven't even got, to, got gotten onto the sales force yet, but just the, the changing cost structure alone, from an organizational perspective, having that ability to, to, to kind of understand the product and perhaps use it, use a slight portion of it or, or a more specified portion of it. Um, this must have, have huge benefits when it comes to adoption within the commercial space. Yeah, no, it's huge benefits. But let me ask you this, right? And this is, again, this is why I wanted to do this talk with you, man, because I think we were one of the few people that actually saw this coming out. But it, it is, okay, so it is 100% a massive benefit, but it is the current thing that everyone is looking for. So here, here's my problem. Here's my problem with this. And, and we'll, we'll, Christian, keep me honest. Let me, let me know if uh, like I'm deviating, okay? Because I, <laughs> I tend to ramble sometimes. It's fine. But here's my problem. 
and I've said this from the beginning and, and, you know, there's a lot of love on Alex Carpin. He's a great guy and all this, right. But when you're trying to say, this is the best way here, here's what we're doing. We are the best software. We're going to be the, the best software company in the world. I believe them. I believe him. I'm, I'm on the tech side and I believe it, but I've dealt with people on the business side and for them, they're like, yeah, we might believe you, but you know, we have, we have a business to run, right? So you're telling us to unplug 16 other pieces of software so we can onboard your system, which literally nobody knows how to use, right? So it's like, uh, you should have done that from before. That's, that's my take on it, right? It's like, I understand that you're trying to build for the future. I get it. But for you to be, you, for you to be alive in the future, you have to compete now. So in my opinion, they should have done like, for example, Foundry as a, as a large thick suite, fine. But the way that their, their engineers probably built this, I don't know this, right? But I just, I can guess from the way that their demos and all this and the, just the way they speak, um, the way that they built it, it's actually not that difficult to modularize it. Now I'm dumbing it down. It is quite difficult, but most other software is actually built from a function, right? So like, it's like they, they solve one use case and they tried to mold that to solve other use cases. And that's why it's hard for, for example, like if you onboard like a larger suite, like a, I don't know, something like Salesforce or whatever, it comes as a big suite on paper. It looks great, but then you have to set up, you have to basically integrate all their own shit, <laughs> sorry, uh, you know, all their own stuff into your, <laughs> into your, you know, company. So it's not like it, nothing ever works out of the box, right? Palantir is probably the closest thing I've ever seen that works right out of the box for the most part. So in that way, it wouldn't be hard for them to split it up. There's a lot of shareable code, which means like if they, if they use something to write like one particular function, it's most likely that when they split it or when they move it to a different sort of area, it is actually going to share some of the same code. So the actual uptime for, for development is faster. You get to the market faster. So if they built like a Foundry 2.0 or, or something else, name something else, right? They'll, it'll share a lot of products with the original Foundry. So they'll be able to get to that sort of you know, pot of gold much faster than another company would. So yeah, they should have 100% done this. I think it's good that they're finally realizing it. Um, but you know, I, I, this is another thing that I mentioned that I think Kathy did leave because she coincidentally left right after Alice Carp gave that talk where he was like, yeah, we made a mistake here. I think we're going to start modularizing more, right? And then the next day she sold like 60% of, um, of, of her stake, which is a little bit odd, right? Even for me, there's a few of us who were like, dude, they should be doing this from the beginning. So yeah, I think it's good because right now, if they split off some of the components that they are claiming to be like one big ecosystem, it is actually going to speak to different parts of the business than any other product would. When, when, when other SaaS companies actually sell to you, they try to sell more to the problem that you have actually. So when they come in, they're like, okay, so what is your problem? And then they will just, you know, put salt and they just keep, you know, skewering that dagger into that one spot, but they don't realize that there's other problems and, you know, up the chain and down the chain. Uh, whereas Palantir could take this opportunity and say, okay, look, um, it, it's a platform that integrates your whole team, right? So they can say, okay, if you want your project managers to view the whole pipelines and stuff, you can you can basically onboard this one uh, component that does exactly that. And you can you can basically pipe that into your data lake, wherever that is. You don't have to use ours. You don't have to use our specific data solution or whatever the case is, right? So this is definitely good for them. This actually helps their sales force sell their product more. I'm telling you that now. It'll be hard for any good salesperson you know, worth their salt to sell a massive operating system. It'll be easier for them to sell in pieces and eventually stick those pieces together as one big operating system over the long run. Like I was mentioning before, right? It, the, the sticker price is not it. They, they keep selling to you later on. They come in later and they say, oh, we have this other thing, you know, blah, blah, blah. So with Palantir, this model would actually work fantastically because their, their, their different offerings will integrate so easily compared to other companies. Yeah, super bullish. <laughs> I, I can tell, and I think... We agree on a few different points. You mentioned in a video, um, Palantir 
IT people in the community um, or, or in general are, are really converging on, on the idea of Palantir. Is this, a, yeah. is this a, a common thing in which IT people converge on one idea in terms of its benefits or, or is this kind of not as common within the IT industry? And from first glance, I can kind of tell why it wouldn't be common. Um, there's, there's so much to know in the IT industry. It's so complex. There's so many different views and ideologies on how sh things should work and why things should work in that manner. Could you just give a, a brief rundown of perhaps why you think um, IT technical people emerging on the benefits of Palantir? Is it just because the product is exceptionally good? So not, I mean, the only, only real thing that IT people really and, and the whole culture agrees upon is uh, funny cat videos and maybe Skyrim <laughs> and Elder Scrolls. So, and StarCraft to a certain degree, but, but, but at the end of the day, like we don't really agree on much, but see the whole community is not going to jump on Palantir for sure. But the folks that have been in the space and the folks that are like, uh, uh, have worked with data pipelines or ETL pipelines or, you know, Hadoop and things like, you know, basically the data side of it, we know, like when you see something like Palantir, you're like, holy crap, this is actually you know, the stuff that could have helped us in the past few jobs or whatever the case is, right? And then you dig more into it and you find out that they're, this is, they're, they're, they're not solving one problem. They're solving an entire, like, you know, set of problems rather than just one thing, which other companies focus on. Um, so, yeah, I think the, the, the people that are converging on this are more so people that have just generally been frustrated with the sort of like status quo or the, the current business, current operations of businesses, for example, right? Every developer is not going to like this product. Actually, most probably don't. It's, it's not like they don't like it. They just don't know about it or whatever. But the folks that have been like, I've had the opportunity to both do developing, stay on the business side, as well as, you know, do the uh, operational, all those tasks as well. So seeing this stuff, I can be like, holy crap, this, we need this because 90% of the problems are human problems where it's like, oh, well, this team is using this thing. The other team is using something else altogether. How the hell are we going to converge? So people that see that 100% will converge. That's why there's people like me and I guess uh, uh, Chris is in IT as well and like Coastrap and stuff. Like Coastrap is like, you know, he's like, he's seen all this stuff. So in a way, you know, that's almost validation on its own. But yeah, that's one of the reasons why I think uh, we would agree on it. Plus, plus actually, um, sorry, last point. Uh, sure. <laughs> but plus the thing is when you see the demo days, right? So the funny thing about demo days is a lot of IT companies have demo days. And, and a lot of the product that's there is uh, kind of like a shell of its own. And you know that, right? Like you kind of know that. In a way, Palantir might have that as well for demo. They might have like a, a staged data. It's not going to be like production data. Of course, that's fine. But 90% of the time, if you actually try to compare other demos, you, they're only going to show you like one sort of function. And then the, it'll like swap the screen to another page. And what that's done is they usually have recorded this in the past. And it's like something is broken somewhere else. They're like, okay, let's fix it and then demo that. So it's like different clips, whereas Palantir, they're able to go from one thing to another, to another, to another, in one screen, which is, it's something to be said about the integration within the actual platform itself. That's actually quite difficult to do. It's an easy thing to do, but the complexity is actually, like, it's, it's not something that works out of the box. And this is what plagues a lot of people that are trying to build software from the ground up. Okay, we're talking about the bullish shadow of Palantir, and I love talking about the bullish shadow of Palantir because often I feel like... Just innately, I'm very critical of myself and I try to be very critical of like the, the equities I'm holding. But yeah. I think it's sometimes good to, to, to talk about the, the bullish side of Palantir. Today I was researching before you came on the podcast, um, Industry 4.0, which is kind of this buzzword for basically <laughs> digitalization occurring in the future and yeah. automation and disruption when it comes to innovation. Um, I was theorizing over 
Google over Microsoft. And I think in the future, at least my, my theory suggests that in the future, organizations, specifically within, within the tech scene, it's going to be a winner-takes-all type market. Now, we've heard this terminology kind of thrown around in the, in the, in the past by Cathy Wood. And I think it's also intertwined with something called rights law, which basically suggests right. that costs decrease as output scales. Um, it's basically yeah. very similar to, to the idea of economies of scale. And, and researchers at MIT have proven this is um, apparent in, uh, in all areas of technology, which is fascinating. So in consideration of the fact that Palantir is the first mover, in consideration of the fact historically they have the best talent, in consideration of the fact that Palantir is garnering competitive moats 10, 15, 20 years down the line through their SPAC initiatives, through battle testing their software with right. their governments, can a company like Google compete? Can a company like Microsoft compete? Is there plausibility to those arguments? Or is it fair to say that number one, Palantir are really garnering huge competitive moats uh, for, for such a yeah. long period down the line. And this could potentially be a winner-takes-all-esque market. Is that, is that a fair statement to make? Yeah, theoretically, yeah. Theoretically, it's definitely a fair statement to make. Um, actually, you know, I've, I think I've thought a lot about this. I made a few videos on this stuff as well. Um, okay, all right. I'll give you my honest opinion. But the, the truth is, theoretically, you can easily make the fact that Palantir, with its current state, can do a winner-take-all market. It's basically playing in a, in a class of its own. Actually, part of that reason is because, you know, it's like they're, they're addressing everything. It's a whole platform, right? We just discussed that, but anyway. Um, yeah, so it is definitely a winner-take-all, but I, I got to be honest with you. The reason why I don't believe that so so much is because I think it's a winner-take-most, mainly, like, realistically, right? Realistically, mainly. 20 years from now, who knows? But, and I, I can't base this on anything other than just the fact that, you know, Put it this way, put it this way. Google and Microsoft and all this other, all these like, you know, big companies, Oracle, all these folks, right? When they make a piece of software, sometimes it's really crappy. Like I've worked with a lot of Microsoft software and, and some Oracle and not all of it works out of the box. And I've worked with the exact same thing in another company and it works fantastically. So there's a level of inconsistency. But anytime I've ever spoken to any person that's worked in Microsoft or anybody else, sort of off, off to the side, they're always like, yeah, you know, but you guys will still buy it. Right. Mm. It's like, right. And, and I've never been the one making decisions. So, you know, like I'm a consultant, so it's like you, you pay me. So I'm not going to tell you what to <laughs> buy. Right. But at the same time, people buy it. They can make a piece of garbage software and people will still buy it. Now, what a Palantir will do, I think is this is why I don't think it's a winner take winner take all, but what Palantir will do is they'll eventually put pressure on some of these companies to actually make the best product that they can do. Right, not not. I don't think they'll compete with Palantir one to one, but what they might do is they might ratchet up their existing sort of offerings, and it'll be better. Like a classic example is look what happened to, uh, with Slack and Microsoft, right? And there's other ones, but this, Slack is something that a lot of people are invested in. So let's bring that up, right? When Slack was was really sort of like in the in in the space, and it was started to um, you know permeate through all sorts of companies. Like uh, what was it, 2013 to 16? I think it was. Yep. They actually wrote a letter to Microsoft saying, oh, you know, because Microsoft posted this thing we're like okay we're going to take this seriously we're going to compete with slack and this is when um they this is right after they acquired skype and they tried to make skype into this like ad and business type of thing but slack was just way better right it was a totally new game uh, you know entry into the market uh the integrations for you know pipeline stuff for developers within slack was super revolutionary like never seen before um never actually done that well before it was seen before but what happened was Microsoft, it took them three years, maybe, actually probably even less, but it took them less time to make something that's actually better than Slack. 
and cheaper than Slack because it's included into the suite. And they basically, I mean, that's after that Slack just sold off, right? <laughs> it sold to, to Salesforce. So what I think is happening is most of these companies, specifically Microsoft and Google, are fine with making just okay product. I'm not saying that they're okay. They're decent. I'm not saying that the product is bad. But no matter what they make, these people will buy it. Just to, just to uh, you, you said you're in a, uh, like the media space, right? Yeah. So Google's placed heavily in the media space. Uh, they have these things called DB360 and a bunch of other things for advertisers, right? If you actually take a look at it, it's a quite a good product. But they have a smaller subset of products for, uh, for smaller agencies that are absolute dog shit. But they still buy it, right? So I think what's going to happen now is Palantir is going to put a lot of pressure because Google and Microsoft will see the fact that this is a holistic product. And they're like, okay, we can't, we can't come up with half-assed product and half-baked products that even if they are cheap, kind of barely work. We'd rather come up with something that's a little bit better and see what happens. That's my opinion as to what's mm-hmm. going to happen. And the second point I want to make on this topic is that we all have to understand, guys, okay? A lot of people are coming from the Tesla side of it, right? I get it. But we are not amongst, like Palantir is not amongst the midst of Luddites. These guys are tech companies at their absolute prime, right? And, and some of the people that have helped build uh, like Google's only been around what? Like they've only started, you know, really swinging their their weight around since two thousand what seven eight nine ish, right? So we're we're talking less than twenty years, right? So that's still if you take if you really think about it, those core developers, the real A team for some of these companies are probably still there, right? So and these guys have they hire they hire a lot of engineers, but they have some very very good talent. So is it is there something that, like? These guys might not have been pushed for a long time, right? But now some with something like Pantry on the horizon, they might look at them and say, holy crap, okay, we finally have a challenger. So let's actually go out there and like flex a little bit. I think that's what happened. To be honest, Pantry will be first. I think uh, in the enterprise space, Pantry will overtake Microsoft in the long run. But I think Microsoft is going to be fine with that. They're going to um, let Pantry take over and then turn around and just turn their guns on everyone else. <laughs> So yeah, that's what they're going to do. I think that's fascinating. And I haven't actually heard that, that reasoning before, but I think it's very good reasoning. Um, theoretically, it's possible for a winner-takes-all market, but in reality, I mean, it's it's another ball game because you do say, yeah. as, as you said, Google and Microsoft and, and some of these companies are really just in their prime. I mean, Google hasn't been around yeah. for that long in the grand scheme of things. So it's fascinating to see where that where that company goes, and especially in, in, in the cultural side of Google, Microsoft, and all these companies. They're, they're From the top down, they're focused on innovation. That's their culture. Yeah. Um, they're focused on creating the best stuff. And I think... I do side with the argument that, that Google and these companies perhaps will come face to face with Palantir sometimes in the future. Um, we'll see in what dimension. I know I know Palantir have already beaten uh, Microsoft in the context of Skywise. Microsoft yeah. were, 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 were developing a system for Boeing and airlines to use. It didn't end up working as well. Um, and I think their contract was only around two years until Palantir came in two years after and managed to displace Microsoft, which was interesting to exactly. see. Um, I was theorizing over the this in the car yesterday and i think i posted this, this on twitter and i was theorizing over just the macro and i like to think macro sometimes in comparison to specific companies but i was theorizing over the over the possibility of you know me five years down the line reflecting back on mm. on moments like this i think from a macro point of view it's incredibly logical to state and it's highly highly likely that everyone can see in five years time um there's going to be a huge emphasis on data. So we know where the macro is going, right? We know where the macro is going in terms of data exponentially growing. 90% of the world's data was created in the past two years. We also know that organizations today are currently not utilizing the potential of the data. Right. So you have these, these trends that are occurring. I think there's other comparisons with other industries. For example, um, 
for example, cryptocurrencies. I'm not a big Bitcoin fan at all anymore, um, but I do believe overall in the long-term macro trend of cryptocurrencies in some sense in the blockchain. So I think you can see this, this macro trend occur, um, and I think you can predict uh, fairly logically. It's almost inevitable that these macro trends are going to occur, for example, the data scene. My question to you is, can you see a possibility in which software in the future is not a competitive edge for organizations? I think it's highly likely in the future that software is going to be a fundamental necessity for organizations. It's not a luxury anymore. You're going to need to empower yourself with that data in order to really drive value and therefore gain a competitive edge over competition. Can you see a future in which that is not the case, in which organizational software is not a necessity it's still a luxury is that plausible to state or not because if that is, if that is the case then from an investor's point of view at least from my point of view you can really narrow down on a company like palantir which is a first mover which does have long-term competitive moats and therefore through strategic thinking that's like the most plausible investment to make so do you agree number one that 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 software as a competitive edge um, is the future or isn't the future? Um, can you see any other scenarios playing out? And how would you approach it just from a macro point of view in terms of projecting the future of this industry? Okay. For those of people who I guess who are wondering if, you know, software is, uh, is, is not been permeated or whatever the case is, guys, like it's already here. The whole data emphasis oh. thing, Christian, you were talking about, right? It's, it's not a thing that's going to happen in the next five, six years. It's here now. Okay. okay, I'll give you an example. I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Um, so I, I really started my career in 2013-ish. And um, I remember, so I, 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 okay, so I know I know a consultant who has uh, pretty much been working with all the banks. And um, they're specifically working at that time with, they were like a database administrator at one point. So they dealt with a lot of the database side of things. Um, but they eventually moved over to something like Hadoop, which is just horizontal scaling for data for the most part. But it, it slowly started to take a data approach. And then now he's basically writing ETL pipelines and all this other stuff to actually filter some of the data sets that they have to their analysts who then make some business decisions and so on and so forth. Okay. And this is banks. These are banks. I'm telling you, if a bank is doing it, you're too late. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cause the, the banks are generally, they're like the Luddites of the software industry. Yeah. They're only, ex they only exist because we need them to like for almost like a legal reason. Okay. So if a bank is starting to ramp up their or ratchet up their, their data work and they're actually be talking very seriously. And I think, um, what was that? I think, yeah, CIBC from in Canada is actually, they're, they're, they're trying to buy Palantir or something. There's some Palantir work there, but if a bank is looking into it, you're, you're sort of, and you don't know that, like you don't, you think it's like, Oh, it's almost here. It's, it's here and it's been here. So this, the, P, the companies that do a lot of good in the next 20 years are going to be the ones that actually take um, the data that they currently have and actually make some use of it. Because there's actually tons of data. Banks especially have tons of data as well, right? Mm. It's all muddled. It's all like basically garbage. It's like, it's like crude oil, right? You don't, there's nothing you can do with that stuff. You have to basically refine it to actually be able to use it somehow. Um, so guys, it's already here. Please, whoever's watching, like, <laughs> don't be like, oh, I don't know, guys, this data thing. This is not like autonomy, okay? Autonomy is something that is currently being solved. Data it has, it's been a problem in the tech industry for actually decades. And in the past, I would say the 10, maybe 15 years. So 15 years ago, maybe in Silicon Valley, but the rest of the sort of world for the most part, in the past 10 years, 100% companies have been taking approach. A lot of companies like banks have been taking approach to actually, you know, bring some sort of advanced elevated tool to help make sense of their data so guys it's already here so there's no question about that 
Uh, for the second thing, software is 100% eating the world. And part of that is because the, the cost of developers are dropping like crazy. Mm. Also, if, if there are like, you know, software dev developers watching, you guys got to diversify a little bit, okay? So <laughs> the, the wages are dropping for you guys. So please make sure you do that. But anyway, um, yeah, so the cost of developers are, are dropping like crazy. You can hire a team if you really wanted to from like the Philippines um, with like six good developers. They're not going to be the best, but they'll be decent um, for, you know, the same cost as you would have to hire like one developer or two developers from, from here. But the point I'm trying to make is before this, most of the stuff was all support. Now you can build an entire app, right? You can build, so there's... <laughs> There's a really famous app, actually, and a lot of people use it. I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's Bumble. I don't want to name drop and, you know, but whatever. Let's just, let's just say some, some sort of dating app, right? A large part of the initial stuff was actually written by, you know, offshore teams in the past, I guess, like six, seven years, right? So, like, I mean, developing is cheap. So, software is 100% eating the world. Now, we're moved on to the, the, the whole, like, so now we're software 2.0, but it's more like the, the next stage of software, which is the data side of it. Uh, and, and just to actually give you some, some insight, Christian. Uh, specifically from something like media, right? There's, there's, there's a thing called cookie deprecation that's happening. And this is where I think Palantir should go into. And, and they're actually like the companies that are dealing with this are trying to get this kind of solution. But every, every company stores data. And the one that they store that's proprietary is, for, is called first party data. And that's usually a massive mess. It's a massive mess of just random garbage that you don't know what to do with. And there's a lot of teams like data scientists that sit there and they, they basically write segments. They write tools that uh, or they use tools that segment this data to then push it through to the analyst to then go do something with it. So in the case of advertising, they, they use that as a sort of like a, a, a categorization to then sort of like pitch to or whatever the case is, right? In the case of internal sales, they use that as a CRM technique or whatever the case is, right? There's a lot of different angles here. So the first party data is always here and it's in every company, by the way. It's in every company. So 100% guys, software is eating the world. This is not like, if you guys are not software folk, I'm telling you right now, it is happening. It's already here. Like, we're in the midst of it. By the time you realize that it might be too late if you're not in the software game. Mm, that's that's kind of a similar response to Coastrap. And I asked him on our podcast, which is coming out on yeah. uh, on next Wednesday on Spotify and YouTube, I asked him, um, what will companies do if they don't adopt Palantir? And yeah. I've kind of theorized over a few potential options. And correct me if you disagree here, but I, I theorized over, number one, they have to adopt Palantir to derive value. Number two, they can either outsource and connect different individualistic systems together to try and create something that's on level with Palantir. Number yeah. three, they can either, it, it, you know, really invest in their own IT house to, to drive value. And once again, those final two examples seem kind of implausible because number one, the cost often, uh, th these things are incredibly expensive to do so. Number two, they often don't work. And number three, if you're an organization that wants to sell, you know, a thousand cars or something, why in the world do you want to invest so heavily in your IT team? It's so much more, more plausible in my view and likely that these organizations will, will go out and adopt a holistic solution that's, that's, that's ready out of the box that can provide huge value. Um, for example, Palantir. I think that reply was, was very interesting and, and true. The fact that software has a competitive edge is here now. It's just yeah. a question of which organizations are going to adopt it quickly and which are going to survive. And that's a question I think organizations are going to grapple with in, in the future. On that topic- And how they use it. Yeah, and how, the, how they use the data too. And I read a report by, De, uh, I think it was Deloitte a few months ago, and they stated, we've already passed a point in which data has importance. Now it's how, <laughs> how, how the data is used, how the data is leveraged, and, and, and what yeah. software is used in order to derive value. So I think it's, it's a very interesting reply. Tell me how sticky Palantir be can become, because I don't like being too theoretical and too speculative over the future of Palantir. I really try Absolutely. to ground myself. But at the same time, 
not only does Palantir enable network effects, but it's also yeah. extremely sticky um, in the context of applications build, being built on top, um, just the use cases and how useful it can be for your, for your, your organization. How sticky can Palantir become? And I mean, they have a, a fairly good um, rate now in terms of stickiness. I can't remember the exact figure, but it must be a few years um, in terms of the average contract duration. What are you expecting this figure to do in the future? Is it too unrealistic to assume that an organization is going to use a software like Palantir for the next 10 years, for the next 15 years, or even longer? Is that unrealistic and too speculative? Or is that actually a possibility that organizations may be using Palantir for the next 5, 10, 15 plus years? Yeah, there's, okay, so there's, there's a few things here. Um, the, the second point you mentioned there, Christian, remind me about the whole, uh, the 10, 15 years thing, if I don't get to it, okay, because I might, mm -hmm. I might okay. lose it. But Okay, let me address something. Palantir, guys, I'm telling you right now, and this is not speculative. Like, I'm one of the most realistic people talking about Palantir. I'm telling you. Like, I, I've, I've, even, I've even presented, like, stupid bear cases, okay? <laughs> but I'm telling you, Palantir will be the definition of a sticky product if they get into a company. Okay, the, the reason I say that and the reason I can say that with such high confidence is because, like, they literally are building it to be sticky like that. They're, they're making an operating system. They're not making one product. Now, this whole modularizing their stuff, actually, I think it's going to reduce their stickiness, to be very honest with you. Um, it might be hard for them to upsell because, sure, they might, they might say, okay, I'll, I'll take on your data suite, but we already have a data lake that you can connect to. And Palantir might say, okay, well, what about the analytics side of it and all this other stuff? And then they can say, okay, well, you know, we already have this other thing. And then you're dealing with a people problem, right? But if, somebody, if a company takes on Palantir as a full product, it'll be very, very tough to remove that. Like, I, I will argue that it'll almost never be removed, barring any crazy, you know, stupid issues or whatever with the system. The number one reason, I'll tell you right now, the number one reason people switch software in companies is because of, well, yeah, so two, re two reasons they can hash as number one, which is either the money, which is usually a, like a kind of a moot point because you know the price already, okay? Um, it's either money or it's something to do with the integrations. And when I mean integrations, like when a product comes in, and, and I know that, uh, you know, Dave Lee talked to Jackson about this exact thing. No software, guys, no software works out of the box when it comes in. All these demos work all fine and all the salespeople sit in meeting rooms and they, they, you know, they schmooze you and all this stuff. But the developers in those meeting rooms, they look at each other and they're like, okay, how much do I have to fight you to get anything done here? They know that, okay? So this stuff never works out of the box. Those are the two reasons why people switch half the time. Now, the one problem with the integrations bit is almost solved already with Palantir because the entire suite is with the same company. They built the whole software to work well with each other, right? And on top of that, to actually connect to like a third-party database is not very difficult. Like it's, it's actually quite an easy problem. So by Palantir saying, okay, we're going to modularize and do that. They're, they're like saying, okay, fine. We know we can do this already, but here you go kind of thing. It's almost like a throwaway, right? So it is going to be the definition, the definition of a sticky product, in my opinion. The problem is selling it, right? Mm. The, the, that's the biggest problem. And on top of that, Palantir, to be honest, is one of the most mature things I've ever, like I've ever, and I haven't even seen what the, the salespeople sell uh, through Palantir, right? But just from the demos, it is one of the most mature pieces of software. And a lot of times, Christian, like when, when sales teams go and sell software, they take the Oracle approach, which is basically trying to sell futures, right? And they'll say, oh, we have this great solution. It's going to do this in the future, but they'll tell you it already does it. And then they'll basically put their developers and your developers like on, on you know on top of a fire and say just get it done, <laughs> right? So with Palantir, the product maturity is fantastic. The problem now is the sales cycle. So yeah, it's one hundred percent going to be sticky. And and um, the whole 10, 15 years thing, Christian, right? Yeah. To address that, 
the reason why it won't go away, guys, on top of that is because once software gets into companies, it is very hard to remove it, mainly because you have to go, it's months, like getting software onboarded itself is months, which by the way, is a very huge advantage for Palantir because they can do it in weeks, like in a matter of like six weeks or something, right? Um, so onboarding like realistically takes a quarter, maybe two quarters at the very least. Um, but so on top of that, it's basically like a, like a sunk cost fallacy, more or less, right? So companies will say, oh, I already spent so much time. We, we took the sales guy out for lunch. He bought us a really nice lunch. And, you know, it's like, maybe we'll just use it. It's okay. We'll just hire <laughs> Shabari over here to be a consultant and do the rest of the integrations. That's pretty much how I make my living, yeah. <laughs> right? So I know this. I've heard this from people all the time where they're like, ah, because I've told people, I'm like, why are you using this shit? It's, it's terrible. Like, I'm, you're, you're paying me so much money to do stuff that I, you know I shouldn't be doing, <laughs> And usually they're like, oh, it's okay, man. It's fine. Somebody else made this decision. So <laughs> we'll just leave it. Don't worry yeah. about it. Right. So it's for, for a crappy software like that, it stays in the business for five to five to six years, up to a decade, if it's good. So Palantir, if it gets in there, plus it's an operating system, it will stay there for decades, decades. Right. On top of that, because it's an ecosystem or, or full operating system they're providing the updates that they would provide would be a little bit more of a rolling style rather than it's like, you know, they'll call us and say, oh, uh, hey guys, you know, I know you're using this, but we're going to make an update and they don't provide what's called breaking changes. And then it, you know, craps your entire thing and you have to go back and forth with their team to fix it. Right. This stuff will be largely solved with something like Palantir. So yeah, man, it'll be 100% the stickiest product you'll ever see. Let's just, we really have to sell it though. That's a problem. I mean, just think of it like Skywise, right? Pardon? Just think of Skywise. Skywise yeah. is a Boeing really going to get removed yeah. Palantir when you have productivity <laughs> improvements and increased efficiency on cost, time, and everything. Like, yeah. is that really a plausible argument? But on the other side, I don't want to say, you know, Palantir is going to be used forever in an organization because once again, that sounds too speculative. So I'm trying to like remain on the safe side and, and understand how sticky. Can you know why it won't be used forever? Like to, to, to provide you with something, right? You know why you might be right where you can say like it might not be used forever? Tell me. Because uh, what happens is usually for developers, the, the time that you spend at a company is around anywhere between a year to two years. Uh, and that's that's not a problem. The problem is the, the middle management, right? So like the directors and the VPs, they don't spend longer than three years at a company. So every time they get hired, and I and on all my videos, I try to stress the sort of like the human approach to this, right? When they get hired, they want to make a difference. Mm. They don't want to just use the stuff the previous guy did, right? They don't want sloppy seconds or whatever. Mm, <laughs> so they, yeah. they want to sit there and actually say, I want to make a difference. So they'll say, okay, what new thing is in the market? And they'll <laughs> get guys like me or staffing agencies to say, okay, you go find something that's new and like, let's make it work, <laughs> even though it's, it's going to cost more. Mm. So there's a human problem here, but it's hard, it's, it'll actually be hard to do that with Palantir because they might only be able to say, okay, we're using Foundry, but maybe we're not going to use the, uh, um, you know, the, an the analytics solution. Let's use something else for that. They might piecemeal that out, but once they do that, they're going to quickly realize that it's not as you're going to have to do integrations. There's a lot of rolling costs. There's like professional services you got to pay for, white labeling, all this other stuff needs to happen. So um, mm. it might happen, but it might happen because of a human reason. And that guy is going to get fired real quick. after. So. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the for deployed engineers that Palantir requires um, to go towards organizations and, and kind of um, fit the software or specialize the software in some sort yeah. of manner. I've heard you speak about this in a podcast and I thought it was really interesting. Is Palantir yeah. truly scalable in consideration of the fact that you have to have a forward deployed engineer go out and, and kind of integrate the product within an organization? Can you just speak towards number one, is Palantir truly scalable because of, of the forward deployed engineers? And what do the, the engineers actually do? What do they actually do within yeah. an organization? Do they um, specialize it 
in a bespoke manner um, in yeah. order for Palantir to, to really drive value. Um, could you just speak towards those two points? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Actually, Coach Trap might have a better, he probably worked with those guys, worked with those guys, but um, yeah, I could definitely speculate on that. The thing is, this is a common practice in the industry. So I, I don't like it's it's one of those things where why why is Palantir being picked on for this when <laughs> and they send like one engineer or like two, right? Yeah. You know what happens in, in actual the actual industry? So for example, when, when I had to sit with Salesforce, they sent three sales guys, a team of engineers, and like one project manager who did not need to be there. He was literally picking his nose the whole time. <laughs> so like it, that's what happens. So compare that to like one engineer that sits there and does stuff. I would take that any day of the week. And actually the reason for that is because um, uh, past, the, past the salespeople schmoozing you with lunches and doing all sorts of dumb shit like that, what actually it comes down to is the engineering team sitting together and seeing like what we actually have to do. Because like I was mentioning before, software never, never, never works out of the box when you buy it. It's not like, you know, it's not like Tesla. You, you don't just buy it and drive away with it. It has to be, there's some level of, you know, handling that has to be, you know, had before, before it actually works into your system. Um, some of the things that these folks would do is, Actually, very small, like operational menial tasks, which is something like, uh, where is your database? You know, give me the, the actual, um, you know, connection string and things like that. So then they can onboard that into Foundry. A lot of this actually, in my opinion, is, is actually a good thing because with something like Foundry, uh, you can't really trust dev teams to be able to connect all the dots. You have to understand and actually assume that the dev teams don't actually have the proficiency to be able to get it up and running. So it's very important to have somebody that even if he's not going to do anything, even if someone on the dev team on the buying company is smart enough to get the stuff done, the engineer is probably going to be much faster at it, right? It's about efficiency at the end of the day. Even if the engineer is not as smart as the one that's in the buying company, he knows where to find stuff. So for example, like a very, very small example is something like, okay, are you, if they're using like a, if they're connecting a different database or something with uh, with Foundry, for instance, right? They might say, okay, where exactly is your data store? Let's connect that together, uh, vice versa. Okay, let's let's onboard your teams. Let's make user accounts in Foundry. What kind of roles and, and responsibilities do each members have? Uh, how much security needs to be put into, you know, for example, um, we onboarded six users, or let's say we onboarded three teams of uh, five each. So that's what, 15 people? Okay, how many people need to have executing permissions? How many people need to have mm -hmm. read-only permissions? Do you have any external consultants? How, what kind of access do they need to have? Um, you know, uh, another thing would be something like, uh, um, oh, do you need any help setting up pipelines? Do you have data folk in hand? By the way, that's a very hard problem. Hiring good data people is very difficult. So you almost have to assume that companies don't have that. So you have to ask like, okay, do you have any data people? Like how many data scientists do you have? Or rather than how many like data clerks or whatever the case is. Uh, and if that's the case, you know, can we sit with them and book a meeting where we can walk through a sample pipeline or actually build one pipeline out with them and then take down notes and documentation and that kind of stuff. It's actually quite a technical conversation. It's pretty fun, but it's a quite a technical conversation. Um, usually ends with uh, some kind of like Sudoku or, or, or talk about Elder Scrolls and that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, uh, you have to have that 100%. So, so there's no way um, yeah. that could be automated. Is there really a necessity to automate anything no, it, like that? No, it, it, it is. It is, yeah. Uh, right now, at least. So there's parts of it that can be... To be honest, it, you can do without it, but you're almost putting the onus on your own dev team to be mm -hmm. able to carry that. And then, then when, when, you don't, when you're not able to onboard in a matter of weeks and it still takes a month, like a, like a few months or whatever the case is, you're going to blame the software, right? What do you want as a business? Do you want to be up and running faster? Yeah. Or do you want somebody to blame? Because I think this was one of the kind of the main criticisms, at least when I started investigating Palantir, um, people yeah. criti critiqued the, the company because they had to send an engineer out. That's bullshit, something. man. Everyone they, does they, it, man. They Google saying, does it. They were saying, oh, this is a consulting company. They, they, 
they're not going to be scalable, et cetera, et cetera. But it's good to hear some industry insights into what actually yeah. happens. What are the conversations um, that occur? I have a question, um, kind of a spanner in the works. Are you concerned for the future when it comes to AI and data? I've been researching this recently, yeah. um, this topic of, I think it's called a singularity or something, yeah. in which yeah. uh, there's, there's a danger that at one point in history, exponential growth will occur so rapidly that a huge irreversible dent will be created within society. Do you think that, yeah. that those will be moved towards the future? Um, and I mean, you're a very technical person. You have experience within this industry, which is very interesting to hear. Yeah. What is your concern towards the future? I mean, Peter Till often upholds the view from reading his book that, that something like this isn't going to occur because humans are really good at contextual analysis and computers are really good at mathematical analysis and, and, and vice. They, they kind of work in a symbiotic relationship um, in comparison to one of them dominating another. Yeah. Are you concerned about the future of AI and innovation occurring so exponentially at a, at a rate um, that perhaps is unprecedented and therefore um, irreversible yeah. events occurring that could be very damaging for society? No, not, not no. even in the slightest. Really? Okay. Like, okay. There's computers are very good at mimicking. Mm. Okay. So, yes. Is there a concern that we're going to get to a point where there's going to be a computer that's very human-like? Sure. But just like there are, you know, just like, you know, just like there are smart humans and like, you know, not so smart humans, there's going to be smart software and not so smart AI, whatever the case is, right? There's going to be cases like that. Now, I guess in the, in the both like polar opposites, you're going to have really idiotic cases of AI, like freaking chatbots. <laughs> and then you're going to have really, really crazy smart AI, you know, that actually does a lot of stuff. But so, so in those polar opposites, I guess you can call that, but I don't know. I, I haven't, I, I've read a bunch of, actually, there's a book by Ray Kurzweil, which is a called, actually called the singularity or something. Yeah. I, I'm in the process of reading it. I've read it once already, but there's, there's such huge differences between, there's a lot that humans actually provide in terms of value. The one thing I do think is actually a problem. Um, and before we get to the whole like you know end game picture, but the one thing I do think is a problem is that I think the 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 advent of artificial intelligence is going to drastically impact our way of our sort of like cost of living. So I'm I'm taking it from um so in the middle I'm ta not talking about the polar opposites in the middle there's actually functional AI components that are going to take people's jobs. So I'm not the mm. person I'm not the type of guy who sits there and I hear the shit all the time and I hate when I hear it, which is like, oh, you know, when a, when a new technology comes in, new jobs are created. Sure, I 100% it's right. But the people that lose those jobs aren't the ones that fill those new roles. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like my dad drove a truck for a long time. Before that, he was a door-to-door -door salesman and all this other stuff, right? You And he actually, by the way, he actually tried to get into coding and he did a few, uh, uh, you know, coding jobs and all this other stuff, right? But he's a, one of the very few guys, okay? Like the people, for example, a, a blue-collar worker that gets displaced is not going to be the one that takes the developer role. Sure, someone else, the not, another generation, or uh, uh, like their child might do it, sure. But that person is still going to be depressed. That person is still going to have anxiety because they lost their only way of knowing how to earn a wage, right? Like I come from an absolutely blue-collar family. Like, I'm, like everyone I know is poor as hell except me. So I, I'm, I speak to this like 100%. Um, so I think what's happening is that middle gap, not the polar opposites where you're worried about like the Terminator or like a really dumb Terminator, right? In the middle, you're going to have a lot of good, actually good for humanity. So in a way, I'm kind of saying that sometimes these people need to lose jobs. I get it. It sounds bad, right? But it's the reality, right? But that is the reality that we live in. Like it is going to happen where there's, there's going to be a few things where, you know, even in between the, 
the technology, the machine learning will be smart enough to actually do your job for you, depending on what you're doing, right? Uh, I know that there's like from an IT side of it, I'm not too worried. IT always changes. It changes every four months, yeah. literally. So like as soon as you get a job in IT, you're obsolete, okay? <laughs> so in a way, it's, it's whatever. But there's a lot of industries where it's going to affect people's everyday cost of living. And that's why I'm with Elon on this one where he's saying like potentially there might be some case for UBI. Uh, I never cared for UBI, mm -hmm. but in that scenario, I, I can see that actually helping. I think that was fascinating. And, and one I've kind of speculated upon this uh, in the past. And I mean, you have one side of the argument stating if you look back in history, for example, the yeah. creation of the tractor, um, it created so many new jobs. But then you compare it to current days and you speculate upon, well, are the two, to do the two dates comparable? Um, the, the complexity of AI and the effectiveness of AI perhaps could displace jobs for good. And I, I really like your argument there in terms of, Yes, new jobs will be created, but the people that are displaced, they won't fill the roles. And I think, to be honest, well, part of that, actually, Christian, before I get your take on sure. it, part of that, and, and I'm sorry, like, sorry to cut you off, but this no, is sorry. important because it affected me in the past. Yeah. The reason it's important is to understand is when the tractor was created, when the printing press was created, when all of these, like the previous industrial revolution, all this stuff was created, all you had to do to learn it was use your hands. Yeah. Right. Like you had to, maybe the most complex thing would be in the factory where the printing press, where you had to press maybe three extra buttons or pull two extra levers. When you're trying to say AI or machine learning or, or an automated future, like buddy, let me tell you, like I, I worked on some machine learning products that actually did some decent stuff. And even I don't understand some of this stuff, right? So if, imagine trying to go, going and telling a farmer or mm. going and telling like a, a, a yeah. truck driver or going and telling somebody who has forever just made couches or like you know ha hammered a nail into a piece of wood Tell, oh, listen let me explain python to you sir let me why don't you sit down let me explain to you how to write c++ mm -hmm. they're gonna laugh you they're gonna laugh at you and probably do do worse depending on what you say <laughs> yeah <laughs> right? yeah i, I so, mean I, I think in my opinion yeah. it's uh much to do with the education system i know tim cook's a big advocate of mandatory coding in schools and i couldn't agree with him more i i, yeah. I've, I started to code over a year ago perhaps now um and I'm, I'm no good in the grand scheme of things, but uh, it's so liberating in terms of what I can build online, online businesses, potential products. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly liberating. And for some reason, I find it kind of uh, therapeutic in a very weird way, uh, which is something <laughs> that I didn't previously know. But, but I think it's, in my opinion, I point towards the education system. We've got to make uh, the education system better towards, uh, better adapted towards modern society. Let people code, make it mandatory, make it fun. Make it, yeah, yeah. make it engaging. I really think that's important. Um, I, I have a final question for you before we wrap, wrap up because we've gone over slightly. I hope you don't mind. Palantir, necessity of a business to consumer product. What are your thoughts? Give me your, give me your take. Oh, man, get out of here with that. I don't know. <laughs> okay, like, is it the case that if they have a B2C, they're going to just absolutely go through the roof? Yeah, for sure. Right. But when, the, what are they going to do? Like, yeah, really think yeah, about it. Exactly. Like, one of my theories actually was, I, I spoke to Jackson about this on my first like podcast I did with him was I actually think one of the, like some of the SPACs that they're, they're going through the, the plan might be eventually if they come out with something like one of them is like a healthcare company that, that mm -hmm. deals with a lot of, uh, uh, you know, actual consumers, right. They might acquire them. Who knows? Right. If they're, if they're using the product well enough, they might acquire them. That could be their B2C wing. It's, it's possible. But wow. the way that, the way that they're, currently situated right now no man there's no way this i don't know I, I i could be wrong obviously we're all just speculating here but they don't need a b2c they're trying to completely revolutionize the like pretty much every industry palantir is a hail mary of a of a product right palantir yeah. is a hail mary of a company it's not 
it's not like a, Hey, let me go and, and secure the next down. Uh, sorry. I'm using like American football analogies, but like, uh, <laughs> like basically let me go and secure the next goal. This is more like a, I'm just going to throw it as far as I can. And we are going to reach the final goal that we're doing all the small stuff for that's Palantir as a company. So in a way they don't need a B2C. Cause if you think they need a B2C, you're looking at it from a traditional business view and, and that's okay. That's okay. Right. I, I understand that. Um, but if they displace, like, for example, things like Merck and, and even Skywise and Atenia, uh, and all these other things, right. It's actually going to impact those businesses so strongly that the, like I was like, I think you, you asked this question about the network effects. It's going to be like cemented, right. Yeah. Palantir is going to be one of those companies that you just cannot get rid of. And it's going to be for, it's just going to continue to grow forever. Um, at least that's, that's what I think of it. But so I don't think they need a BTC specifically that could kind of compress the multiples a little bit. So, you know, it is what it is, but. I don't know. I don't think they need it. I agree. And from an investor's perspective anyway, I think there's a point where you just can't speculate that far into the future. Focus on yeah. the fundamentals now. Focus on what they're doing now. Monopolization of a set industry now, which I think is occurring to some extent. Um, we need that big fish to fall, Christian. Honestly, the one <laughs> if I if there's a takeaway from this from these kind of talks, Christian, like and whoever's watching, yeah. We need the sales team. Sales guys, if you're good, go apply to Palantir. Seriously. Yeah. Actually, yeah, I know somebody who who <laughs> applied in uh Anyway, but anyways, but like the point is they need to sell the product. Mm. Like they need to sell this thing and it's hard to sell. So Alex Carp, I think is realizing that Peter Thiel, um, actually, if, if you have time, we can sure, definitely talk about Go that. Ahead. But um, Peter Thiel discussed this in his book, Zero to One, right? which I think yeah. you disagree with. So I'm yeah. interested to get your points on that if, if we have a little bit of time. But uh, the point is this, the whole build it and they will come field of dreams. Like analogy is total, like it's total BS. Okay. It's an engineer's way of thinking about it. Okay. Believe me. It's like, Oh, I built the best product. Of course, someone's going to want it. No, that's not how it works. You need someone to sales. Selling is an art. Like if you can sell, like, you know, some of the best salespeople aren't like, they sit there and do nothing. Like engineers will look at them and, you know, it's like, like this guy doesn't do like anything, <laughs> but he actually is doing a lot. Right. So it's, it's the network of sales is, is incredibly important for especially software. Software will be nowhere without sales. So, you know, they need to sell it. And I think Alex Karp knows that he's finally sort of, hiring more salespeople, I guess, but more importantly, splitting up the product where they can actually take that bite-sized piece and sell it. So that's, that's the one thing that I'm looking for. I agree completely. And I thought, um, I, I agree with, with what you said there. And I disagreed with Peter, uh, in his book and I understand where he's coming from. He was mentioning, you know, build the best product, don't spend anything on marketing and therefore organizations will come and, and use the product. I understand. Yeah. And I think that works in some industries. I think that works in Tesla's case, consumer facing products. I think that, that Oh my God. Thank works. you. However, yes. in the context of an invasive holistic solution, such as Palantir in which is literally the backbone of your organization. It's, it's ridiculous to think that, that organizations are going to come and adopt this. You have to show them what it does. You have to ha perhaps give them some yeah. sort of free pilot or sell it in, a, in, a, in an artistic way in order to coherently present what it does and therefore um, <laughs> really, really um, gauge confidence in the, in the organization and, uh, and from using the product. So I completely agree. I, I can have said it better yeah. myself. I think, I, I think, I think you're going to make a lot of, uh, you're definitely going to get a lot of uh, weird comments for, for saying that, but it's true <laughs> though. It's the real truth, right? Like actually Peter Thiel, um, you know, I knew you disagree with him, but he did mention that sales and marketing is very important. There was one chapter he completely focused just on that. So uh, check that out one more time. But the rest sure. of the stuff, I definitely, I'm with you. I like, I definitely disagree with him on that because I mean, it's look at the industry, by the way, the, the whole Tesla point, I think you, you drove it, you know, down the hardest and probably the best point you made, which, which was uh, like, guys, Palantir is an enterprise product. Okay. For anyone that's listening, it's a, it's a piece of software. I'm excited about it because I, I work in the space. I understand software and like, you know. I, I like I like the way they're going, and I think they're 
the way that the way they build software is what I think people should be doing. Okay, I have my ideals, but the reality of the situation is Tesla is a is a product that ch- like children and people dream about owning. No one is sitting overnight and saying, I dream of like buying foundry. So so the idea is different here. You can't look at it from a consumer light. And that's, that's really important to drive home here. I think. I I think you said it very well yourself. (laughs) Um, It's exciting to think about and just touching on your previous point, the the consumer facing product. I don't know what it could be. Um, I think focus on on monopolization of, of a set industry of a set few industries of, of building the best product that there is. And then, we can perhaps uh, speculate in five years' time when we're all millionaires <laughs> yeah. about about the uh, that's right, man. <laughs> the, the, the potential of a consumer-facing product. But overall, I'm really excited. Thank you so much for coming. I thought you had some excellent points. Um, once every guest I have has just such a good, unique approach, and I feel like I'm a sponge right now. So, so apologies for for not speaking my mind as as much as I should have. I'm just listening so much, and I thought it was some excellent points that you made. Um, tell everyone where they can find you. Uh, I thought you have some great content on, on online. Yeah, it's uh, my YouTube channel is just CyberFam, and then uh, my Twitter is uh, OG CyberFam. So yeah, I mean, you guys want to follow me? Follow Christian. Like, I, I literally am a dad that just makes YouTube content because I think it's funny. But Christian <laughs> has some really good takes. We actually share uh, like similar views on a lot of yeah. stuff. So I will stop plugging my stuff. And, and Christian, dude, awesome work. Um, super glad to to do this with you. I think uh, you're one of the like the most refreshing people in the community as well. You need. You need the stuff that you you're talking about because you're looking at it from an objective light as best as possible, yeah. but at the same time being realis- realistic about the bullish aspects of the company and and the other side as well. So, I think it's really crucial for the community to have uh, somebody like you speak on these topics. Thank you so much. It means a lot. It's great to speak to you, and and hopefully you too, we'll, do, we'll do something on your channel soon, um, in the in the short 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 term. Yeah, so yeah, we'll book something. All good. <laughs> absolutely. Give me a text on on Twitter or whatever. It's great yeah, to man, speak we'll to you. Do. Thank you so much. It's been an Thanks, honor. Christian. Appreciate Thank it. you. See you guys.